Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. I like to hear an enthusiastic audience. Uh, my name is Matt Kressel, and I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow, who's sitting right here. No, that, that's Raj and Connor. Ellen is... Uh, Ellen's in Florida uh, visiting her mom, so uh, Rajan Kano um, is our co-host tonight, and so uh, everyone give an applause to Rajan. Thank you. Um, we have uh, two amazing readers tonight. We have Grady Hendricks and David Leo Rice, who are going to read for you. Before we uh, get started with that, just a few quick announcements. Actually, we have a few more announcements than normal tonight because Ellen's away, so she had to make sure that I announced several things. <laughs> Actually, no, that she has a lot of things going on. Um, you may have heard about the new release of the Omni magazine. So those of you who are as old as I am uh, will remember that Omni magazine was a big thing in the, in the 80s and early 90s. When did it start? Does anyone remember the year? It's, it's in here. It tells you what year they started. I think it might have been the late 70s. Anyway. Um, it's a science magazine. It, like everyone's like, oh, wasn't that like all like weird conspiracy and aliens? Like, no, it was always a science magazine. That's what it was meant to be. So this is a collector's edition, and we're giving away uh, three, right? Three copies. So we decided to do a little trivia. Hopefully that uh, the questions aren't too hard. So hold on, I gotta get the questions out. Give me one second, because I don't even remember the answers. Okay, here we go. Ready? Uh, this is Ellen's question, so it might be it might be a little tough. Some people will get it, I think. Uh, what is the title and author of the Omni story that won the first World Fantasy Award for online fiction? Wait, did someone have an answer? Go ahead. Yes. Five, four, three, two. Me. No, all right. I'll give you the answer since no one got it, and that means I get the copy. No, <laughs> Michael Swanwick, Radio Waves. Okay. All right, I'm, another, I'll give another question. A little bit easier, not maybe, I don't know. Uh, name a short story author in the new issue. There are three. If you get one, you get a free copy. Jeez. Jeez Louise. All right. There you go, Rich Larson, there you go. All right. The answer, the answer to the other two are on the cover. So, you know, you guys can cheat. Anyone, anyone? No. All right, one more, one more question, and then uh, after that, I got nothing. Um, what year it started? I don't remember what year it started. I don't even know what year it started, I just said. Um, name a George R. R. Martin story or novelette, a short story or novelette that appeared in Omni and won a Hugo Award. 
and it's one of his most famous. So. Sand Kings. Who said that? All right, there you go. Get your free copy. All right. Good job. Good job. One more. Um, how about this? Um, might be a little bit easier. She's done over 100. Name an anthology that Ellen Dotlow has edited. Mad Hatters and March Hares. All right, I like that answer. That's a great segue. I'll tell you why in a second. That's a great segue. So, uh, yeah, he's a plant. It's true. No, it's not. Um, so, uh, Ellen Datlow uh, has edited a Alice in Wonderland themed anthology called Mad Hatters and March Hares, uh, which comes out in December next month. And we're doing a reading here. I'm actually in this, and uh, Richard Bowes over here is in it as well. He has not, he's, he's removed himself from it. Chris Dykeman, Genevieve Valentine, Isabel Wilson, Catherine Vaz will all be reading here. That will take place December 18th, which is two days before the fantastic fiction reading. So just to confuse everybody, we're doing both in the same week. Uh, the, the Mad Hatter's Alice reading will take place on a Monday night, and fantastic fiction uh, will be on the, t on the usual Wednesday. Um, now, I'm supposed to have books to give away, um, but I don't think, is Liz Gorinsky here? She's not here yet, but she was supposed to bring some copies of Mad Hatters and March Hares uh, to give away. So maybe at the break, if she comes, we can, we can give those away. Um, okay, I think I got through all my announcements, um, all my non-standard announcements. So Fantastic Fiction and KGB has been going since the late 90s. It's always free. There's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you buy a drink. Hard or soft, tip your bartenders. They're working hard. Uh, it keeps the bar going. It keeps the series going, so please do that. Um, okay. And one more announcement. The upcoming readers. Uh, next month, December 20th, N.K. Jemison and Chris N. Brown will be reading. <laughs> January 17th, Mike Cole and Joseph Hemmelreich. February 21st, Cassandra Kaw and Peter Nell Van Arsdale. March 21st, Chandler Clang Smith and Kelly Robson. April 18th, John Paget. May 16th, Tina Connolly and Carolyn M. Joachim. June 20th, Lawrence Connolly. And uh, we got more great readers lined up for everyone, so I hope you'll join us um, next month and in, in um, 2018. So, all right. Oh, and uh, one more announcement is that Word Bookstore's in the back with, uh, I believe they have uh, two, uh, two of Grady's books. They have Horror Store and Paperbacks from Hell. So right by the door, Word, if you could like wave to us. Yay, okay. So you could, and my best friend's exorcism as well. So. During the break, you can go to Word Bookstore, buy a copy, bring it up to Grady, get it signed. And David Leo Rice, who's going to be our first reader, can I uh, have a copy of that? Has a room in Dodge City copies to, to purchase and to get signed. So, uh, you know, choose your, your wall and then, and then come over and get it signed and, and you know, meet the, meet the author and uh, maybe make a new friend. Um, our, our first... 
Our first author tonight is David Leo Rice. David is a writer and animator from Northampton, Massachusetts, currently living in New York City. His stories and essays have appeared in Black Clock, The Believer, The Collagist, is that how you pronounce? Collagist, Hobart, The Rumpus, Volume 1, Brooklyn, and elsewhere, and his animations have played at festivals around the world. A Room in Dodge City, the start of a trilogy, is his first novel. And I'm told he's going to be reading from the second book in that series. Uh, the first book won the 2016 Electric Book Award and was published this year. He recently finished a standalone novel, Angel House. Here's David Leo Rice. All right, thank you, Matthew. Uh, if I can make this a little higher. That's there we go. That works. That works? Yeah. Very good. Cool. Okay, well, good to see everybody here. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I would say this is definitely my favorite venue in the city, uh, and it's also the first place I read when I moved to the city a number of years ago. Um, and I've seen a lot of my favorite writers here in the intervening years, so it's great to be back. Uh, also, I would say I feel a particular sense of relief being here tonight, uh, because when we were planning this reading, it was last January, and it was like a day before the inauguration. And I was sort of communicating with Ellen, and she said, you know, how about November 15th? And at that time, I remember thinking, like, what are the odds we're going to be alive on November 15th? <laughs> so so I'm, I'm glad we are for the time being. <laughs> Beyond that, I can't, I can't speculate. OK, so, so tonight I want to try something that I haven't tried before. So hopefully you'll bear with me, which is to read from the second volume of this trilogy. So the first volume came out this year. And I've just finished kind of editing and finalizing the second volume. So we'll see if we can make that kind of standalone. All right, so to give just a little gloss on the world of A Room in Dodge City, it's basically about this nameless drifter who drifts into a kind of nightmarish Dodge, Dodge City of the mind that's a sort of hallucinatory version of the old Wild West. Um, in the first volume, he basically accepts that he's never going to leave. He's, he's fully incorporated into this place. So the second volume is all about his attempt to gain some sort of a foothold in the Dodge City film industry, which is a very occult and sinister and sort of satanic world, as perhaps many film industries are, uh, as we're finding out. Um, and it's mainly to do with his increasingly violent conflict with this character called Blute Branson, who's the kind of like Old Testament patriarchal director who rules the Dodge City film industry with an iron fist. Uh, and all of the films that are allowed to be shown in Dodge City are made by him. So our narrator is trying to get involved. And the way that he tries in this little excerpt here is he applies for a job as a location scout on Luke Branson's new film. Um, and that uh, will follow him through that adventure. Okay. After a hot, disoriented wandering spell, I arrive at what the tourist map calls a complex of refurbished hostels, originally built by a courageous band of Civil War deserters as a failed bulwark against the creeping despair. The premises are surrounded by a giant wrought iron fence supporting a sign that reads Branson Industries in rusted metal letters. I'm considering shouting to announce my arrival when an assistant rolls up on a golf cart opening the gate from inside with a mobile device and gesturing for me to climb aboard. You got the call, she asks. I nod and climb onto the cart beside her as she puts it in drive. 
taking us straight into the heart of the complex, which contains five large buildings and a number of smaller ones, like sheds, in clusters around the periphery. I can't believe I've lived in Dodge City this long without ever coming out here. I suppose I never before considered myself ready. Okay, get out, she says, jerking the cart to a halt and returning me to real time. I tumble to my feet and follow her along a concrete path into the bunker. We pass through a thick plastic curtain and into a cement-smelling cavern, where the only lights on are red. I get the sense that unseen plant life is growing all around us. I follow her further in, past tables laid out with what looks like guns and cash, into a side room with a door that requires a fingerprint scan to open. Inside are at least 50 people, applicants like me, I'm assuming, on plastic chairs under more of that harsh red light. At the focus of everyone's attention sits Blute Branson himself, or the assistant director, playing Branson, in fatigues, combat boots, and a safari hat. He turns and looks me over, calmly, and when he turns away, I have the feeling that he's seen all the way in. I take this as my cue to sit down. Clearing his throat, he says, as you all surely know, I've been incommunicado for the past while. I don't care to say where I was, nor do I need to. All that matters is that I'm now ready to get back to work. The next Blute Branson film has just begun pre-production. He leans to the side to reach into his back pocket and remove what looks like a plastic hood, which he unwraps and stretches over his head, sealing it around the neck. Then he presses a button on his mobile device and blinks somberly as gas hisses down from a sprinkler and we all nod out. When I come to, I'm in a glaring white room with six other people. We're laid out on cots, tied up inside sleeping bags so tight we can only wriggle. The seven of you, says Branson's voice over an intercom, have been selected as location scouts for my next film, as yet untitled. Good, good work if you can get it. The, other, the others have been let go. This is, needless to say, an immense honor. The jets leave for Kazakhstan in half an hour. Each of you will receive a written description of the location you are to find. He pauses to swallow whatever he's chewing. I have never in my life dreamed of a location from one of my films, he continues, his voice clearer now that his mouth's empty, and failed to find it somewhere upon the earth. What is in me is also out there. This is my brand, my claim to fame, my greatest asset. I've seen this claim made before, in the preface to Branson on Branson, interviews with the master. <laughs> its metaphysical hubris impressed me then, and impresses me even more now, to hear the man himself make it so boldly, free of the abstraction of print. My chronic fear of flying has been well documented, so it should come as no surprise that I require your assistance in tracking these locations down. Suffice it to say, if you find the location you've been assigned, its inclusion in my body of work will be your life's crowning achievement. <laughs> you will not be credited, but you will know in your hearts when you see my film that the credit is yours, though of course no one will believe you if you say so. <laughs> At this point, an assistant enters the room with a scissor, and after asking each of us if we consent to execute the job we've been selected for, we all do, cuts us free. Scout the area you're airdropped into, says the assistant, overlooking no corner, relentlessly seeking out the location described in the file you've been given. You will be fairly paid upon your return, bearing photos of the location and its exact coordinates. In a few minutes, I'm airborne, leaving Dodge City for what feels like the first time. I can't see the other planes, but I picture us all taking off like an Air Force squadron departing to bomb a distant continent, Civil War deserters finally ready to pay our patriotic dues. And, I think, not only to bomb that continent, but to pillage its natural resources, to dig them up and bring them back to Branson so that he might continue his career as a world-class visionary without ever leaving his room. 
I look out the window at the landmass becoming a speck until the co-pilot rushes over and shuts the blind, saying, Branson requires his location scouts to keep their heads clear until arrival at the designated site. Finding a Branson location is as much a matter of tuning one's inner landscape as it is of scanning the outer. May I suggest a sleep mask? He pulls it over my eyes as soon as the suggestion is made. Many hours later, the co-pilot returns to remove the sleep mask and inform me that we've touched down in Kazakhstan. I'd been expecting a concrete bunker airport on the outskirts of a ramshackle city, but it looks like we've landed on a dirt patch in the middle of the steppe. The suspicion that we are, in fact, barely outside of Dodge City is already hard to ignore. <laughs> okay, he says, handing me a heavy backpack. You're in charge from here. Read Branson's description of the location he's seeking, then walk in whatever direction you feel it lies in. If you didn't have an innate sense of where that was, he wouldn't have chosen you. There's a phone in the pack that will ring when it's time for your pickup. You are to take photos with that phone as well. Food and water are also to be found in the pack. Ration them wisely. For most of the first day, I walked through sparse meadows with nothing in mind except the location that Branson described in the file, a lone tower in the midst of a rocky field jutting into the sky. As it's getting dim, I pass an area demarcated by a sign that reads, Field of Landmines, Proceed at Own Risk. <laughs> I proceed, training my eyes on my feet rather than the horizon. For a while, I notice nothing out of the ordinary. Then, looking up briefly to regain my bearings, I see a man arrested in the process of stepping on a landmine, his exploded body mixed with pieces of shrapnel, all of them hovering in midair, presumably supported by invisible wires. Approaching it cautiously, I think one of three things. One, the landmine warning is simply a ruse for the sake of contextualizing an art installation. Two, the dead man's real, but he stepped on the lone landmine, and thus there's no further danger. Or three, he's an example of what can still happen out here, to me or anyone else. Though I try to distract myself with vague musings about the unlimited reach of the Dodge City art world, which is even stranger than the film world, the fact that many more of these installations are now appearing around me, all men frozen in, frozen in midair at the height of the explosions that killed them, if they were ever alive doesn't bode well for the safety of this particular stretch of step. Soon I'm so surrounded by hovering, exploded bodies, which I now notice bear more than a passing resemblance to me, unless I'm forgetting what I look like from the outside, that the intense loneliness of the journey abates, much as I wish it would return. I start to feel claustrophobic and fall to my knees, crawling through the sharp grass, peering between my fingers for mines. This goes on until I get so exhausted that I lie down and try to sleep, hoping the morning will dispel the mood that's come over me. It does, more or less. After some brisk walking the next day, I pass another sign that reads, now exiting landmine display zone, which still doesn't resolve yesterday's art versus reality dilemma, but does bring some relief. I walk on without incident until, on what is by my count the third morning, I crest a small hill and, on the other side, find exactly what I was afraid I might, the M Tower jutting into the sky. As soon as I lay eyes on it, a deep memory rushes to the surface. The M Tower, as I've called it since I was a child, due to the large stone M of its gabled roof, which I always assumed stood for me or mine, is the structure I've gone to most frequently in my memory. Perhaps this is what the M stands for, I think now, when I needed to exit the chaos around me and enter a place of pure cerebral calm. The running water inside the M Tower is a self-renewing spring of fresh thought, where every movie I've ever dreamed of making has been born. I've spent whole days in here, drinking from the faucet on the top floor, looking out over a vast inner landscape absolutely identical to the one I'm standing in now. Am I in my own mind, I wonder? Have I gone nowhere but deeper in? 
If not, how did Branson find this place inside me? What did he do to me while I was gassed? My skin crawls. Nothing feels more important than protecting the M Tower from Branson's influence. It's not his to steal, I think, my voice regressing to that of a child in my inner ear. But what's the alternative? Trudge on into deeper and deeper step until my supplies run out? I imagine answering the phone when it rings and lying, telling Branson's people that there's nothing out here. I reach into the pack and take out the phone, put it to my ear and practice saying just this, but all that come out are stammers. The thought of convincing an operation as militarized as Branson's of anything but the truth is more than I can fathom. So to keep from hyperventilating, I sit down and feel the M Tower shadow wash over me, cool as the sheets on my childhood bed when I'd spend my 3.05 to 3.15 nap doing nothing but dreaming about movies. It occurs to me that this must be how Branson operates. Each location Scouty hires has an inner landscape of their own, which he somehow unearths while we're under the gas. Then he claims it as a product of his own imagination and sends us out to find it. I try to follow this logic through. If I'm inside my own mind now, I think, what would it mean to emerge back into objective reality and lead Branson's people here? And after that, how would they film it and convey its meaning to a mass audience inside the theater in Dodge City? Perhaps they'll make a scale replica and bring it back to Branson Industries to be used on set there. The thought of the actual M Tower, here and real before me, being turned into a replica of itself and manhandled by Branson's crew is too grotesque to dwell on. Getting back to my feet, I creep up to the bottom of the tower and admire its majestic stone flanks and gaping cobwebbed windows. Bowing my head in reverence, I go in. Inside the M Tower, I take my first gulp from the faucet and think, I'll spend the night in here, on the very top floor, surveying the landscape. If, in the morning, I still can't bear the thought of surrendering it to Branson, I'll prepare to take radical action then. When I've exhausted myself pacing the upper levels and thinking these same thoughts over and over, I either fall asleep and begin to dream, or fall into a waking trance in which my subconscious takes over. Either way, I feel as though I'm finally seeing the M Tower for what it is. Whether it's unfinished, still approaching some planned grandeur, or decaying away from some grandeur it held in the past is more than I can tell. A shadow of its past or future self, I think, just like me. The synthesis immediately rings true. One way or another, for better or worse, I think, the M Tower and I are inseparable. One expresses through architecture what the other expresses through biology, and perhaps a soul. My perspective zooms out until I can see us both, one inside the other like nesting dolls, a homunculus in a shell that in turn serves as its own homunculus, which in turn, etc. There is something, though, that we can't see, neither the man in the tower nor the tower in the man. Some more cohesive vision is withheld, withheld from us as the sun goes down over the vast Kazakh steppe and the chirping of crickets and the dusty winging of bats fills the soundtrack. If only, we think, the sun would rise in the morning onto a slightly different world, or if a slightly different sun would rise over the world we think we know, some fruition would surely be possible, some means of seeing far enough inside myself or all the way beyond myself, such that I would no longer waste my days and years in the half-hearted attempt to work for someone else, but would rather come at last fully into my own. If I could only find the right window, I go on thinking, out from the M Tower into the astral landscape beyond, or else perhaps a hidden staircase within, leading all the way down to the vault or the altar or the catacombs, then there, hidden, would be what I'm lacking the knowledge, the insight, the stamina to hammer into the world the movies that have lain latent in me for too long, rotting in Branson's shadow. I'm pacing the tower breathlessly now, up and down its cold stone floors like some undead caretaker, 
skidding in the dust and catching myself just before falling out the wide open windows, the night deep and thick, chasing the glimpses that I feel certain are at hand, closer than they've ever been. It must be either a glimpse of my past, an answer finally to the question of where I came from and who I really am, or else of my future, a long delayed clue as to where, after all this ambient travel, I'm going or ought to go. I'd kill for either one, I think. I collapse here in a pile on one of the stone staircases and either wake up if I'd been sleeping or fall asleep if I'd been awake. Either way, the feed is cut. My last awful thought in the freshly suffocating dark might it be possible that all this is nothing but a canned version of yet another Blut Branson origin story? One more myth among so many thousands of how the great man came to be and why his greatness, as if I didn't know already, so infinitely outstrips my own. I wake up in a heap on the stairs, my back sore, my mouth dry, and my only thought is whatever I saw last night in the depths of my delirium, I need to see it again. I didn't get a good enough look the first time around. Wincing, I pledge that there are no witnesses to build a version of the M Tower in Dodge City so that I might visit its secret-filled inner chamber on a daily basis, as often as necessary to access what I know is hidden there. Somehow, I think, with a little luck and a lot of work, the truth about me will not remain buried forever. My M Tower isn't yours to take, I hear myself say, into the phone which I realize I've just answered. Unless you kill me, I'll find a way to rebuild it. As soon as these words are out of my mouth, Branson's agents parachute down from the sky and gag me with an ether rag. <laughs> then load me into an armored truck as I'm passing out. All right, and this last little section is called Dead Ringers 2. So hopefully some of you have seen the first one. <laughs> the next time I come to, it feels like years later. I'm in a bed with a blanket pulled up to my chin. And though I don't reach my hands up to check, a tightness that feels like a swimming cap on my head. In front of me is a combined TV VCR unit in a wall-mounted frame with an empty VHS box on top. The box says, Dead Ringers 2, a David Cronenberg film. Though I have the queasy feeling that it's actually a Blute Branson film, designed, like all of them, to reassert his dominance over world cinema. Still, I fall right in, as I always do with Cronenberg films, even apocryphal ones. This one, this one involves the same twin duo from the original, again played by Jeremy Irons. Though by this point, he looks well on his way to aging into a poor man's Jeremy Irons. In this scenario, the twins are film professors at a shoddy rural college, sort of a Miskatonic university vibe, perhaps even on the same set as the reanimator. As in the first Dead Ringers, the twins make sure that only one of them is ever seen at a time, so as not to let on that they aren't the same person. Their skeezy, obsessive angle is to sleep with as many students as possible, same as in the original. And here I begin to wonder if perhaps this is the original, questioning my memory of that film taking place in a gynecology clinic in Toronto, though this is exactly the kind of wormhole-bound thinking I've been trying to train myself to nip in the bud. The heart of the drama, once the film has established its premise, is the problem of one twin growing more infatuated with a certain student than the other twin wants him to be, and by extension, less infatuated with his twin than their symbiosis requires. In this case, it's a goth girl with a very conspicuous nerve disease. Like the worst case of shingles ever contracted, her nerves have grown outside her body and are hanging down her face like a mane of dreadlocks. I picture her being played by Rob Zombie's wife, Sherry Moon Zombie. But even in my semi-delirium, I'm fairly certain this isn't the case. A poor woman's Sherry Moon, I think. One twin wants nothing to do with her, but the other, either locating a genuine fetish in himself alone, or else simply eager to torment his twin by acting on a non-shared desire, tries to seduce her anyway. This is accomplished in an undercooked office hours montage, at the end of which they go back to the bungalow that he, Elliot, 
The names, too, are reprised from Dead Ringers. Shares with his more sensitive, self-protective self twin, Beverly. While Beverly sleeps in a spare bedroom they call the nursery, Elliot has sex with the goth girl, whose name we learn is Chloe, a double major in post-structuralist film theory and Japanese, in the bathtub. She leaves in the morning, and Elliot struts into the breakfast nook, ostensibly to gloat to Beverly. But before he gets a chance to, we see his face, riven with worm-like protruding nerves, his lips crawling, bloody fluid dribbling from his nose into his mouth. Beverly butters his toast with a derisive I told you so smile as his twin rides. Soon his face is nothing but a rubber band ball of exposed nerves, and his whole body is shrinking. I drift off at this point in the video, waking to find Elliot reduced to the size of a child, Beverly now in the position of caring for him, as if this new entity were his son, not his twin. Chloe is back in the picture as well, living with Beverly as a sort of mother figure to the baby Elliot, as if he were the natural offspring of their night together in the tub. It's not clear whether she understands that the man she's living with isn't the same as the man she slept with. Perhaps their perfect twindom has her fooled more than anyone, though she must know she hasn't given birth. I get the sense from watching Jeremy Irons' performance in these scenes that he's jealous of his shrunken twin, wishing that he could have been the one to regress and be cared for instead. Even a horrible nerve disease like that, I imagine him thinking in voiceover, would be worth it if I could just have back all the years I've wasted in the process of becoming whatever I am, a sundered twin, an unwitting father, a rural film professor doomed to irrelevance. I can't help hearing Cronenberg himself likewise wishing he could have back the gory, sleazy years of his youth. If I could just get myself back to the 80s, I think, pretending I'm him, and make Videodrome and The Fly and Dead Ringers again, just one more time, I'd, 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 I'd nod off wondering what I'd do if I were Cronenberg, granted permission to return to the 80s for one day only. When I wake up, Blute Branson's leaning over me with a scalpel in one hand, shining a laser pointer in my eye with the other. This dislodges a new, frightening supposition, just as the tape begins to auto-rewind. What if I've been shown this video as a form of infantilization before my true reckoning with Blute begins, a sort of video anesthesia, a forced regression to my own helpless infancy, same as the twin on screen? As he scours my eyes and gums with the laser pointer, the phrase that moves sluggishly through my brain is softening me up, softening me up. He's been softening me up. I'm still thinking this as he focuses the laser pointer someplace behind my left ear and makes the first incision with the scalpel. It doesn't hurt. I know I should be grateful, but all I can access is terror when I think of what I should be feeling and can't. Perhaps, somewhere in the course of watching the film, my nerves were likewise pulled out of my body, I think, aware that the scalpel's inside my skull now, digging around, erasing my memory of this whole episode, uprooting the M Tower so thoroughly that when I wake up, I won't even know that it's gone. That was delightfully disturbing. Is that is that in the new this the, the, the follow-up to it's a in room the follow -up. and dodge? What, what's the second one called? I think it's just going to be called the Blute Branson story. The Blute Branson story. So all right. All about so, his, so his ongoing war with this character. So look, look for that. Uh, if you want to get the copy of the first book, A Room in Dodge City, it's uh, he's got it right here. And um, Grady Hendrix's books are in the back. So uh, we'll take about a 10 or 15 minute break and we'll come back with Grady Hendrix. So stick around. Good evening, everybody. We're going to get started in a minute.
Hi, everybody. Uh, so I am not Ellen Datlow, as Matt said. Uh, I'm Rajan Khanna. I am co-hosting tonight. Um, a little known fact about the reading series is that if you've ever read here once, they can summon you back to co-host or do several other questionable things. So um, I would not ask Jeffrey Ford or Andy Duncan what they've had to do in the past. Um, but I am here to introduce Grady Hendricks, who, are, who is our second reader. Um, Grady has written about the Confederate flag for Playboy magazine. He's covered machine gun collector conventions. He's written award shows for Chinese television and answered the phone for a parapsychological resource or organization. His novel Horror Store about a haunted IKEA has been translated into 14 languages. And he's also the author of My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is now out in paperback. Uh, he recently wrote Mohawk, a horror movie about the War of 1812, which is an underrepresented genre, which premiered at Montreal's Fantasia Film Festival. Um, and his latest book is Paperbacks from Hell, which is a nonfiction history of the horror paperback boom of the 70s and 80s. And I happen to know personally that he's cutthroat at risk. So if you ever <laughs> face him across a table for a game of risk, just be careful. Um, but everybody, please welcome Grady Hendricks. I'm a, I'm a long-time attendee, first-time reader. Uh, but I, I wanted to uh, just make one quick announcement, which is that Paperbacks from Hell, it's a history of the horror paperback boom in the 70s and 80s. And I do a live version of it that involves songs and lots of slides. And I'm doing that on Tuesday, December 5th at uh, FIT, which is on 28th Street and um, uh, 7th Avenue. And um, it's free. Um, I don't have any other details beyond that. Uh, you could go to GradyHendricks.com and go to the events section. It's in there. But also a bunch of the artists are going to be there after the show for an onstage conversation. Mark and Stephanie Gerber, Jill Bauman, Lisa Falkenstern, Tom Hallman. These are amazing, amazing people and not enough people know their name. So please come just to see them. You can just put in earplugs when I'm up there. Um, so I'm going to read you guys. I like to do a full story and I'm going to read you uh, I write a series called The Tales of the White Street Society. They're up on Pseudopod that does a better job reading these out loud than I do. Um, but it's about a 19th century New York-based group of gentlemen adventurers. They have a clubhouse. Augustus Mortimer is sort of their Sherlock Holmes, and everyone else is the Watson. And they have adventures with the supernatural. Um, and, and I just felt like I wanted to bring my view of the 19th century uh, to, to literature. So um, <clears throat> okay. get my jowls loosened up. You can have your Paris, your London, your Vienna, your Rome. For this good Christian, there is no city more sublime than New York at Christmas time. As I walked to the White Street Clubhouse, I sucked in great gulps of cold Yuletide air until my lungs froze solid with Christmas cheer. My feet were numbed with holiday spirit as they tramped the icy streets. My face and whiskers were chapped with all the joy of the season as six carolers raced past me in the opposite direction, screaming, their exposed skin red and blistered with burns. Flesh hanging from their face in sheets, and I smiled to myself, a secret Christmas smile, for this meant that my good friend Augustus Mortimer was home. God rest you, merry gentlemen, I shouted in gay spirits as I pounded on his front door. Augustus, it is I, William, come a-wassling this Christmas Eve. 
Something poked me in the midsection, and I directed my gaze downwards to behold the blade of a saber protruding from the mail slot, half-heartedly prodding me about the belly. It was sharpened to a murderous gleam, but I was wrapped in many cloaks and carpets and coats and shawls to protect myself from the Christmas chill. I felt only a gentle massage around my tummy. Augustus, I smiled, squatting down and peering through the mail slot, is stabbing any way to greet a visitor on this fifth night of December. His eyes went wide. William, he croaked, help me. Let me in and I shall help all you wish, for I overflow with charity and benevolence tonight. There was much clanking and clattering from behind the stout oaken door of 55 White Street as Augustus unlatched the latches, unchained the chains, and unlocked the locks that separated his sanctum from a world of seasonal cheer. The knob turned and his arm shot out and yanked me inside. His face was white. His lips trembled. His eyes were full of fear. He wore a stained dressing gown, old slippers, and his hair was a rat's nest. Are they gone? He babbled. Did you see them? Do they still lurk? Augustus, you must stop dashing pots of boiling water in the faces of your carolers, I admonished. They only, they only come to give you the love of Christ on his birthday. The only gift they bring is squalid vice, he muttered and shuffled away into the bowels of the dark and gloomy White Street Clubhouse. I shed my snowy inner, outer garments and followed. The library, at least, was somewhat cheerier than the front hall, as a fire was burning in the grate, and there were many decanters of brandy and scotch scattered about. The gas was not lit, however, and the gloom gave Augustus's face a grim and tragic aspect as he wept, guzzling a snifter of brandy. What is wrong with you, Augustus? I smiled. I've never seen you quite like this before. Does not every vassal shake and tremble when his dread master returns from the hunt? This time of year, the city's patron saint, the dread Saint Nicholas, hies hither in his monstrous carriage, drawn by ferocious reindeer, the shitting, screaming hell beast of Lapland. The thought of his obese form slithering into my home like a murderer in the night, stuffing my socks with foul and rotten oranges, saliva-coated nuts torn from the claws of rabid squirrels, and his own rancid piss fills me with terror. I don't believe there's a tradition of Santa Claus urinating in stockings, I said. <laughs> the man's a monster! Who knows what he will do? Why else would he cram himself down our chimneys when we have perfectly good front doors, bound by no laws save his own, judging us naughty or nice in some kind of secret tribunal, respecting no national borders? Who knows what filthy diseases his nasty reindeer carry on their hooves? Who knows what plagues lurk in his likes-infested beards? Why this obsession with children? Why? <laughs> There came a timid rapping at the door. I almost missed it, but Augustus reacted as if struck by lightning. Oh, God! He has heard me! He will not tolerate anyone to speak out against the liberties he takes with our chimneys. I'm sure it's merely more carolers, I said, and went up to check. I unlocked the front door, and there, standing on the porch, was a mound of winter clothes in the shape of a woman and a woman. A vision of such Teutonic beauty, she took my breath away. Her dress was so white that it looked as if it was snitched, stitched of driven snow. Her bonnet was both practical and modest, and it hid her delicate braids, coiled on the sides of her head like great piles of golden rope. Her face was round, and her lips rested upon its rolling crest like sugar plums soaked in jam. Her nose was perfectly proportioned and located in the middle of her face. And her eyes, her eyes were two lumps of cold sunk deep into the mounded snowbank of her brow. Is dish the house of the White Street Society? She asked in a charming German accent. <laughs> it is, it is, I cried, and I am one of its members. Who are you? Perhaps the ghost of Christmas beauty. Nine. <laughs> I am Greta von Hitler. What a charming name you have. Yeah, it is from my father. It means one who lives in the hut. That is quite handsome. I am William, which means one who writes wills. Please come in. 
I ushered Miss Von Hitler into the front hall and used the snow broom to bash the ice from her clothes. When she last she was fully swept, I led her back into the library. Augustus, I cried as we entered. We have a guest. Miss Von Hitler is... Oh, Augustus cried as he leapt out from behind the door and brought the fire poker down on the back of Miss Von Hitler's skull. She fell unconscious to the floor. What have you done? Fractured her skull. The less of these Christmas bastards in my house, the better. We don't even know what she wants. Strike first and ask questions later. That is the spirit of Christmas. No, that is the opposite of the spirit of Christmas. The spirit of Christmas is Christian charity, benevolence, and a love towards one's fellow man. No, I think you'll find that strike first and ask questions later is the actual spirit of Christmas. She's having a convulsion, I said, as Miss Von Hitler began to jerk and twitch upon the floor. Help me get her into a chair. Augustus refused to touch her for hygiene reasons, but once I had her seated, her fit seemed to settle, and soon she stirred and opened her puffy little eyes. What happened? You swooned. I demand to know what you're doing in my home, Augustus said. Augustus Mortimer, she gasped, eyes suddenly shining in a way they did not shine when they looked at me. The famous Ubermensch. I'm sorry, but you'll have to speak English, Augustus said. Doctor, I has come from this German kinder orphanage for forgettable children to beg for your assistance. We are plagued by troubles and only a man of your learning can help us. William, I'm going to insist you translate this gibberish for me. She says she comes from the German kinder orphanage for forgettable children and they need your help on a case. Tell her I'm not leaving the house until our city is free from the terror of flying center... He leaned into her face. I know leave. You go home now. <laughs> At that, she burst into tears. I have a tale to tell you that is tale of life and death, a tale of something so terrible it is hard to believe, even for me, a practical German woman, she said. <laughs> Augustus shrugged helplessly. I'll translate, I said. And then Greta von Hitler told us a most extraordinary tale, a tale I would have dismissed as a pack of filthy lies if the teller had not been so beautiful. Every year on December 5, a handful of our orphans go missing from our house. And they are never seen again. It has happened six times. And now it is December 5 again. I beg you to come and solve this mystery. What an amazing story, I breathed. More matter for the police, Augustus said, after I had translated but the police, they say it is the orphans. No crime has been committed. There, you see, Augustus said, mystery solved. Goodbye. <laughs> what would you like us to do, Greta? I asked, moving closer and taking her hands. Please, she said, so overcome she pulled her hand away from mine. Call me Miss <laughs> Von Hitler. Miss Von Hitler, I breathed, one who lives in a hut. What would you like us to do? I would like you to come and stand guard over the orphans. See what comes for them and the knocked and carries them away. I took Augustus's elbow and guided him to a remote corner of the room. She needs our help. Think of the helpless orphans who, who drop off to sleep in their tiny orphan beds, visions of beer and sausage dancing in their heads, and then on December 5th, some hideous creature carries them away, never to be seen again. Good riddance to bad rubbish, Augustus said. Where's your Christmas spirit? Has not this merry season decked the barren halls of your heart with moral mistletoe? Are not you logs of kindness for all mankind kindled in the kitchen of your soul? Does not a poker of peace on earth and goodwill to all men prod the ashes of your benevolence? No. Listen, Augustus. You know how I feel about orphans. I do not. Well, I'm not about to let them be wantonly abducted this close to Christmas. I'm going with Miss Von Hitler, and you're coming with me, or else you should be left all alone in this house. The color drained from his face. Don't go, William. Your servants are not due to return until the following morning, I said. And out on that street, I saw more carolers than I have ever seen before in my life. They are persistent, and they will find a way into your house. They will come in here. And what then, Augustus? And what then?
Stay here if you will, but I go to liberate orphans. <laughs> Let me get my things, he said, and disappeared upstairs. He returned some half an hour later, hair brushed and with a great many clankings and creakings emanating from beneath his Inverness cape. What are you wearing, Augustus? Well, I would not dream of traveling unprepared on a hellish night such as this, he said. I have a pair of pistols with detachable bowie knives in my waistcoat, my sword cane, my pistol cane, my harpoon cane, a small harmonica gun hidden in my boot heel, a folding dirk strapped to my forearm, a dagger in my belt buckle, a poison needle considered in my garnet ring, a knife pistol, a pistol knife, and a knife pistol knife strapped to my legs. Is that all? I asked rather dryly, I thought. Of course not. I also have this bottle of deadly poison in case things go badly and we're forced to take our own lives, and I have this powerful sleeping draught in case we encounter dogs or needy women. They are in identical glass bottles, but I put a small red dot on the label of poison, so there's absolutely no danger of mixing them up. Miss Von Hitler, I cried, we're ready, lead on! The walk was not far, and all around us were the sights of the season. Mummers mumming, drummers drumming, carolers cowering, bell snicklers bell snickling, and I even spotted a few lords leaping. A dragoon of boys in blackface and women's skirts raced by, leaving the strong smell of Christmas spirits in their wake. And on the corner, two brigades of men dressed in tent-sized hats, pantaloons made of ship sails, and chewing tobacco epaulets were shouting, God rest ye, merry gentlemen, at each other at the top of their lungs. We made haste we could we made all the haste we could over the slippery streets towards Klein Deutschland or Little Germany as it is called by our more vulgar citizens. No city in the world save Vienna or Berlin was home to more Germans than New York's Klein Deutschland and for these hardy yet sensitive people the feast of St Nicholas was their most holy day. We crossed Houston Street, the southern border of their Klein Deutschland, which occupies the entire eastern half of the village with its pulsating Oompa heart located in Tompkins Square Park, an old swamp transformed now into a genteel metal full of beer tents and brass bands. The Germans of Klein Deutschland loved Christmas with every fiber of their being, but having been fed on beer since early childhood, they observed their Noels now with a more sober spirit. Not for them, the drunkard's dinner, followed by shouted crowls and riotous assembly. As Mon Miss von Hitler led us onto Avenue B, which was their Broadway, a warm, wholesome, and almost holy spirit enveloped our little band. I think I'm going to vomit, Augustus moaned, staggering against my side. Their enclave was cheap, but well-tended, and to ensure the safety of their streets, numerous Germanic shooting societies had formed local watches to keep out the rowdier elements. The avenue was lined with neat rows of shops that were just closing for the night, as each industrious owner hurried home to his wife and children. The rich tang of wood smoke tickled our nostrils, while smiling men tipped their hats to Miss von Hitler. Guten Abend. From up ahead, the sound of a tuba and the strains of O Holy Night sung by an angelic chorus of purebred German children drifted through the air, just as fat flakes of snow began to fall. Animals, Augustus hissed. Seems a little harsh, I observed, seeing a family through a second-story window trimming one of the newly popular Christmas trees. Germans and the other snow people of Northern Europe are the chief conspirators in this Yuletide disgrace, Augustus said. Thanksgiving is a proper holiday that has dignity and meaning, but this foreign revelry clumsily grafted by them onto the American body politic is nothing more than a dead, rotting limb that stinks of infected pus. I'm sorry, I said. I was watching those adorable babies ice skating and entirely missed what you were saying. We have arrived, Miss von Hitler interrupted. She led us up the steps of a neat brownstone building dusted with powdery snow. The door opened and we entered a world of warmth, good-natured tumult, and delightful confusion. 
On our left were thirty pegs, and from the thirty pegs hang thirty coats belonging to the thirty orphans who called this place home. From the parlor on our right we could hear their voices as they chanted their lessons, and from the back of the house we could smell buttery pastries baking in their ovens. This way, Miss von Hitler said, and so... We found ourselves seated in the tidy offices of Miss Goering, the stern but kind-hearted administratrix of the kin German Kinder Orphanage for Forgettable Children. She was an older woman, and years of kindness and wide smiles had given her an aspect as lined and worn as an old apple that has fallen out of the barrel and rolling away into the corner of the basement, only to be discovered years later, perhaps to be remarked upon as resembling the face of a kindly administratrix of a German orphan asylum. <laughs> Welcome, she said. Perhaps you can see the fear upon my face as I welcome you. I looked closely, and indeed I did, nestled in her folds and wrinkles. It is disknocked, this internal knocked. What is it about this knocked that worries you? I asked. She began to weep. Oh, so much tragedy. I became the administratrix of the German Kinder Orphanage for Forgettable Children almost 20 years ago. Then I was a beautiful girl full of hopes and dreams, like Miss von Hitler is now. Of course, I missed the beauty of the Rhineland, but I felt that America was a good place to live for we German peoples, apart from the race mixing. But 15, <laughs> but 15 years ago, our dreams have turned into the nightmares. That is because of the spicy sausages you enjoy before bedtime, I said, injecting a, injecting a little medical knowledge into the conversation. Some 15 years ago, the first child went missing on this knock. Little Valf was a naughty boy, but full of high spirits. Often we wished he would die or perhaps lose the loose of his tiny legs so that he would settle down and stop his pranking. But it is hard to be angry at Rolf because the child has a smile like an angel. Then on this knock, he settled into bed with the other orphans. And after we have retired to our bedchambers, we heard a great clatter. When we raced upstairs, ready for the spanking of the Rolf, we find his bed empty. The other orphans see nothing. And our orphans are many things, but they are not liars. Ever since then, we are losing children on this knock with great promiscuity. They lose one, three, even five every year without fail. And have been so long that we regard our noble duty as being like the work of the fishmonger. Sometimes the stock spoils. But Miss Van Hitler, she is right. Orphans are not like the rotten fish. We must stop this loss of an inventory. When we heard about the adventure you did into Chinatown, we decided to contact you and beg for your assistance. I have no idea what she's saying, Augustus said. After I repeated the words of Miss Goring to him slower and in English, he lapsed into a thoughtful silence. So it is always on this night, he asked. Always. Well, it is the Feast of St. Nicholas tomorrow, Augustus said, a day of judgment and reckoning for children when they place the Nicholas Stiefel, or the St. Nicholas Boot, outside their door and pray is filled with oranges and candy when they awaken rather than the Nicholas Root or a large tree branch, which indicates to the community that they are a disgusting child who deserves only beatings. It is a day for the eating of Stutenkerfel and the singing of songs in praise of Sinterklaas. I looked at Augustus in wonder. For a man who professed such contempt for Christmas, he knew a lot about it. Know your enemy, William. Know your enemy. Tell me, Miss Gehring, are you perhaps from the Tyrolean region of Austro-Bavaria? Yeah, near the border of Salzburg. She says she's from near the border of Salzburg, I repeated. Hmm, thought so, said Augustus. Tell this stout but ancient woman that we shall examine the place where they store their orphans, and after I make some preliminary investigations, I will most likely decide to lie in wait and see if I can solve this St. Nicholas conundrum. I do this not out of any great love for their race, but because in their ignorance I believe they brought to our great and peaceful nation an infection which could spread, and so I must sterilize this seeping, pustulant wound in order that its foreign stench might not contaminate all that it touches. I turned to Miss Goring. He said, yeah, I heard. 
Miss von Hitler took us upstairs to see the room in the attic where the orphans slept. It was a long chamber with a jolly fire crackling on the hark and 30 tiny beds, each made up with snowy white sheets and each bearing a colorful catchwork quilt folded neatly as his foot. Underneath each bed was an identical bedpan stacked on top of an identical footlocker, no bigger than a loaf of bread, containing all the tiny possessions of each tiny orphan child. At the end of the room, a double window looked out over the snow-covered rooftops of the neighborhood, where a forest of chimneys issued puffs of smoke. Augustus roomed the room for some time, paying special attention to the chimney. Inform these waif dealers, he finally said. I shall solve their mystery, but that under no circumstances shall they allow their unfriendless and unloved charges to sleep in this room. You and I shall wait here in the dark, William, and we will discover what is it that has an unslakable hunger for orphans. This news was greeted with great relief by Miss von Hitler, Miss Goering, and their cook, Miss Goebbels. They insisted, <laughs> they insisted that we come to the kitchen and drink strong coffee and eat spargle and wurzelbrot. I was willing to follow wherever Miss von Hitler led, but Augustus stayed with me a moment with a hand upon my sleeve. Word to the wise, do not eat their food unless you wish to be poisoned. What? The Germans are notorious poisoners. I shall mind eating mine. Be wary. I assured him that I would, then followed Miss von Hitler. It was dinner time, and the kitchen was a scene of delightful charivari, as 30 tiny orphans scurried hither and thither, looking almost like real children. Soon they had the table set and were consuming their warm bread and milk. I observed with Augustus from a scientific distance. Orphans, Miss Goering said from the head of the table, I have an announcement. Tonight is on special knock. Do you know why? Innocent foundlings shook their blameless, unloved heads. Tonight, we have on special scientist Augustus Mortimer and his manservant Bilbo. Uh, uh, many of you who have been with us for many years hoping to one day turn 12 and go become factory workers, you may have noticed that every year several of your little friends go missing. Many of you have been afraid that it is the time of year for you to go missing. Well, Augustus Mortimer is on doctor, and he will discover why have been happening, and he will make sure no one goes missing this year. The tiny orphans clapped for us with their precious paws, and I felt a great glow in my chest. Oh, now drink your cocoa, then to tooth washing, followed by prayers on dim bed, and the front parlor. Yeah, tonight is special camping night in front parlor. The orphans chattered excitedly at the news. All had twittered that their routine had been disturbed so wonderfully. When their meal was finished, they filed out two by two, looking up at us with great curiosity. I watched them go, feeling a pang in my bachelor breast. Right, Augustus said, standing up from his chair, which was surrounded by morsels of bread that he had cunningly pinched off, pretended to eat, then thrown on the floor. It is time for us to penetrate this dank Germanic mystery. We strode out of the kitchen, almost slipping in the puddle of beer that Augustus had pretended to drink, trooped upstairs to the orphan's bedchamber underneath the eaves. Draw up chairs, Augustus said, and we each pulled rough wooden chairs to opposite ends of the room, then put up our feet and waited. As the fire burned down, the shadows kept, kept at bay. <clears throat> seemed to blossom, rising up from the corners like untended shrubberies, enveloping the room in their gloomy nightshade. I rose to stoke the fire. Stop, Augustus' voice said from the darkness. I jumped, startled, for I had heard nothing from him but stop, soft clankings and creakings for many hours. Allow the Teutonic gloom to take hold, he said. Reluctantly, I sat back down and tried to keep myself from nodding off. When a gentle knock came at the door, sometime later, I leapt up in great relief. I shall investigate, I said, and opened the door to find the beautiful Miss von Hitler peering past me. Yes, I asked manfully. I have brought coffee for Herr Augustus, she said. Closing the door behind me, I stepped into the hall and took the proffered cup. Thank you, good woman. Your hospitality is most welcome at this late hour. 
Tell me, how did a woman as lovely as yourself become involved in the orphan business? I must go, she said, but I caught her elbow before she could flee. Realizing that I had no intention of releasing my tenacious grasp on her arm before she unburdened the secrets of her heart, she spoke with great passion. You may not believe me, but I was once an orphan too. My God, I said, you're so kind, so clean. There is no stain of the orphan upon you. Every orphan is like on snowflake. Each is different in his or her own way. Yes. I said, unsure of what she was talking about. <laughs> what are your dreams, Miss Von Hitler? May I call you Greta? No, she said charmingly. <laughs> there was a gunshot in the other room. What was this? She cried, only the wind. I reassured her. Now, if you excuse me, Miss Greta, I must do investigation now. Please go away and forget you heard anything. I slipped inside and closed the door. Augustus, what happened? It came in the chimney, he said from somewhere in front of me in the dark like a thief. I heard clattering, then I saw a monstrous shape climbing out, so I shot it with my knife, pistol knife. I may have also stabbed it twice. Quickly, I lit a dark lantern and raced to his side. There on the floor lay a fat, jolly old gentleman in a red suit trimmed with white fur. He was quite dead. I have slain the beast! Augustus cried and began to dance around the corpse. The old fellow's eyes were wide and staring like boiled eggs, and blood had saturated his jolly white beard. There was a large hole in his chest and two stab wounds beside. Spilled open next to him was a sack full of presents. Don't be fooled by this clever disguise, Augustus said, and pulled off Santa's beard. With it came most of the flesh of Santa's face to which it was attached. St. Nicholas, I said. Nonsense. I merely defended myself from an attack by a large bearded fellow with a gut like a bowl full of jelly and a twinkle in his eye who came at me in the dark wheeling a very dangerous sack full of presents. Hello, is everything all right in there? Miss von Hitler asked through the keyhole. We're fine, thank you. It is merely a chair exploding. As I spoke, I wedged a bed beneath the doorknob. The mystery is solved, Augustus said. He is dead, 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 dead. How so is this solving any mystery without the orphans? It is quite clear to me, Augustus said, using reason and logic, that this is a mysterious orphan's napper. This creature has been slithering into this orphanage for years and hauling the unwanted children away in his sack. God knows what he does with them. Santa brings presents and goodies in his sack, I said. He's not using it for harling children. Then you give me a logical explanation, Augustus challenged. Well, I have none. Aha! Except that you've slain a beloved Christmas figure. We don't have to tell anyone, Augustus said. Except, except what, he asked. Except eventually those orphans are going to come upstairs and they're going to want to know what happened to the presents they expected to receive tonight from St. Nick. Well, I would imagine him finding him a dead in a pool of his own blood might sort of answer that question for them. <laughs> there are 24 German shooting societies patrolling Klein Deutschland tonight, all of them heavily armed and predisposed to err on the side of orphans, Augustus. You do realize what danger we're in. Hmm, when you put it like that, it does sound like a tight spot. Don't you know an actor? Several, I replied. In fact, Jim Mahoney, who you met once, is appearing in the mossy banks of my hidden valley over the Bowery Theater this very night. Not anymore, Augustus cried. For tonight, he will play Father Christmas in an orphanage for twice his normal fee. Mm, actors are immoral, I said, and they will do anything for money. Your plan is a sound one, except... Damn that preposition! How do we get word to him, Augustus? Ah, we shall take a cue from your Mr. Dickens, he smiled, and threw open the window at the far end of the room. It was a large window that looked down four stories onto a maze of back alleys and courtyards where small boys and stray cats clambered and crawled amongst the filth. Ho, Augustus cried, you there, boy! But the stray boys merely continued slinking through the night soil. We should throw something to attract their attention, I suggested. All we had at hand were Augustus's various knives and pistols, and so we began to chuck them out the window at the street urchins with great enthusiasm, I must admit. Eventually, he managed to gouge one of them across the skull quite badly and earned his notice. I'm going to slash your fucking throat, he screamed. 
Boy, how would you like to earn a penny, Augustus called. <laughs> Sir, would I? Run to the Bowery Theater and fetch Mr. Jim Mahoney from backstage at the mossy banks of my hidden valley. Let nothing stop you, for we require him here most urgently. Just that, said the boy, for a whole penny. Do I have to kill him, sir? Make it look like an accident, sir? Burn his body and bury the ashes, sir? No, no, just bring him back, Augustus said, sawing a penny in two. He tossed down one half. You shall get the other half when you return. The shabby child picked up the penny, bit it, saluted us smartly, and disappeared down an alley. Now, Augustus said, we have much to prepare for and very little time in which to do it. By the time the boy returned with a reeling Jim Mahoney, we were ready. I had to admit Augustus's plan was sound, but so incredibly complex that one mistake could jeopardize everything. Impressively, he was even prepared for the eventuality that Mahoney would arrive drunk and therefore unable to scale the building unassisted. I have fashioned a rope from the contents of the orphan's footlockers, Augustus said, throwing down a long, multicolored strand made of nightshirts, Sunday hats, letters from vanished fathers, and locks of hair from mothers long expired. You, Jim Mahoney, stop that. You're drunk enough already, he shouted. Dutch cottage, Mahoney shouted, swigging down the rest of the bottle he produced from his pocket, then dashing it to pieces on a stray cat, or maybe a small boy. For another half penny... <laughs> The urchin we had enlisted tied the rope about Mahoney's thick waist. Then Augustus and I hauled him to the fourth floor, bashing him in the wall several times. Finally, Jim Mahoney stood unsteadily before us in the orphan's bedchamber. At this point, we had piled many beds against the door, and there were only occasional knockings from behind them now. Here, Augustus said, put this on. <clears throat> At this point, we had stripped Father Christmas of his garb, scalped his head of its beard and snowy lock. Because his clothes were already red, the blood was seen more as wetness than as stains. We draped the heavy coat and baggy red pants around Jim Mahoney, then pulled the leathery scalp and face of Santa Claus over his skull like a hood. <laughs> it stinks, Mahoney complained. Now up the chimney, Augustus said. What? Mahoney demanded. Clamber up the chimney, and when you hear the orphans retire for the night, you can slide down and distribute their presents from this sack. They'll be very, very happy. And for you, sir, he brassed a $5 bill into Mahoney's hand. And there's another one of those waiting for you when you present yourself at my home tomorrow afternoon, Augustus promised, after you've given these tiny orphans their visit from St. Nick. <laughs> Mahoney mumbled from behind the flayed face of St. Nick. Now up you go, Augustus said. Mahoney contemplated the fireplace for a moment, but since he desperately needed $10 to finance his one-man show, Shakespeare's Dogs, he was soon clambering up it most adroitly. It's warm up here, he complained. Almost there, Augustus said. There you go. Now wait one hour before sliding down. Now, Augustus said, turning to me, let us restore this room to its previous state, then go and inform the housefrau that all is well. Because we had separated Santa's body that Augustus had shot into various parts and hidden the pieces inside the only containers available, we were careful to make sure that the orphans' little beds were back in place and everything was stowed ship-shaped so they would not have any cause to open their tiny footlockers before morning. <laughs> Don't worry so much, Augustus said, slapping my back. They could think of it as an impromptu anatomy lesson. I would have thought myself king for a day if I was a boy and received such a gift. That was when we heard long, loud screams echoing from downstairs. There was one thought in my mind. Miss von Hitler, danger! I'm still not sure how I descended those stairs, but one moment I was in the attic, and the next I was in the front hall, staring in horror at the thing in the parlor. 
The orphans had made little nests for themselves out of woody blankets and nuzzled down for the night in front of the flickering fire while Miss von Hitler and Miss Goering kept watch over their adorable slumbering forms. It was a vision of peace and serenity except for this vile abomination which stood in the middle of the room while screaming orphans dashed about its feet or rather its foot for one of its black feet was human in form while the other was a cloven hoof as horny and hard as any goat's. The hoof and the foot alike terminated in hairy ankles and the hairy ankles became hairy legs and the hairy legs terminated in a hairy, thick trunk, which belonged to the most hideous and hairy creature I had ever seen. Taller than a man by a good head and a half, it had coarse black fur all over its body, except for its belly, which was worn bald and covered in scabs. Its head was like a devil's, with a long red tongue that lolled halfway down its chest, and curling horns that protruded from its forehead. Fangs, burning red eyes, and jagged, ripping claws completed the image of the denizen of the pit, escaped to the earth's surface. Krampus, Augustus breathed, arriving behind me, although I had no idea what he meant. The beast was laying about itself with a long length of rusty chain, beating the orphans with great abandon. Miss Gehring was sprawled across the floor in a swoon while Miss von Hitler crowded against the door. She cried out one word, Krampus! Instantly I understood this thing was called Krampus. <laughs> <clears throat> The hall echoed with the deafening roar of yet another of Augustus's hidden pistols. I don't know where he kept this one, but although I saw the ball pierce its hide, it slowed the vile Krampus not a whit. Paralyzed with fear, surrounded by screaming orphans, none of us seemed able to halt the mad creature's rampage. It was the sight of Miss von Hitler, her eyes rolling back on her hair, that spurred me into action. Wading in amongst the orphans, I grabbed a poker from the fireplace and turned to face this Krampus. The filthy creature dropped its chain, picked an orphan up by its heel, and flexed its scabrous stomach. A slit appeared, which gaped open like the pouch of a kangaroo, and it attempted to jam the child into its disgusting flesh pocket. I was having none of it! Filthy! I cried, bringing the poker down on the monster's head with all my force. It dropped the orphan and turned to face me. I struck it again, then again, and then I proceeded to batter it vigorously about the head and neck with my poker, causing it great distress. Aha! Augustus shouted in triumph. Physical violence is the key! With that, he picked up a cast iron doorstop and flung it as hard as he could at the Krampus. It struck the fiend in the back of its head, and its eyes rolled up into its skull, and it fell to its knees. With shouts of joy, Augustus and I laid into it, pressing our advantage. For the next little while, I quite lost track of time. Soon the screams of orphans changed tone and tenor, and I stopped my work and looked around. Augustus was still bringing the doorstop down repeatedly on the jelly he had made of the thing's skull, and the Krampus now mostly resembled a boneless pile of wet, bloody carpet. I pushed it with my toe, but it did not move. Augustus, we've won! We surveyed our handiwork. Miss Gehring and Miss von Hitler had stopped screaming some time ago. Now they were attempting to comfort the sobbing foundlings who were splattered head to toe in Krampus gore. I, I thought personally we both struck quite the manful image decked in the entrails of our opponent, but Miss von Hitler seemed more interesting in the whimpering of these children. Their children, Augustus proclaimed, that is how we Americans deal with intruders in our homes. <laughs> Now let's have no more crying, and instead, why don't you all join me for a great cup of cocoa in the kitchen? I think you have done enough, Miss Gehring said, but Augustus ignored her. Come, children, he said, hurting the dumb stuck and perhaps traumatized little ones out of the room. First one there gets the biggest cup of cocoa. The parlor was suddenly quiet, leaving only Miss von Hitler and myself all alone. How do you feel, I asked her. Sick to my stomach, I might vomit, she moaned. I came in close. Yes, I suppose for us this is all in the night's work, but you have never seen two men of science, such as Augustus and myself, investigate an unexplained mystery. 
I tried to take your hands in my own, which were quite slippery with gore, so it was rather tricky. I would like you to leave me alone now, she moaned. Not without a kiss, I said. William, Augustus said, crying, striding down the hall and interrupting my most romantic moment. The orphans are safe with their cocoa, and now I think it's time for us to depart. Come on, we have a long walk ahead of us. Reluctantly, I stepped away from my Valkyrie, my Rhine maiden, my Nordic princess. I blew her a kiss. She did not catch it. Miss Von Hitler, Augustus said, bowing over her hand and clicking his heels, you will find that when the orphans return upstairs, they might have a very special visitor soon, one who will erase all memory of these unfortunate incidents from their tiny minds. Good evening to you and to all a good night. With that, we strode out of the German kinder orphanage for forgettable children and walked up the street. Well, that was a good night's work, William, Augustus said, taking my arm. What was that creature, I asked? That was, if my German folklore is correct, a Krampus. Who or what is a Krampus? From the Tyrols, Augustus clarified. The Krampus is a demonic figure from Germany's pagan past. On the feet of Saint, Feast of St. Nicholas, it rides along with that bearded Christian gentleman. But whereas St. Nick passes out presents to the good children, Krampus terrorizes the bad ones, distributing beatings with its chain, and so on. Occasionally, it carries a child away in its horrifying skin sack. For what purposes? We can only speculate. Uh, there really is no way to plumb the motivations of an imaginary creature, especially a foreign one. My... God, I gasped, and you're telling me that this unclean beast has been carrying off orphans ever since Miss Goering took over. Yes, she is from the Tyrols, as apparently brought her disgusting superstitions with her. That's the problem with these people. They bring with them their bad habits that are better left back home. By now, we were drawing close to the White Street Society clubhouse, and our pace slowed. Well, you have done one kindness, Augustus, I said, smiling, and revealed yourself to be as generous and charitable as any Christian gentleman. What do you mean? Why, Augustus, I said, feigning surprise, you took extraordinary efforts to replace the dead St. Nicholas with an imposter of your own devising. I think your heart has grown large enough this night to contain 30 tiny orphans. <laughs> if Jim Mahoney doesn't fall down in a drunken stupor and break his neck, he said, but I could detect a faint smile playing around his lip. Well, he might be clumsier as St. Nicholas than those children I used to, I mused. I hope he doesn't wake them up. No fear of that, Augustus said proudly, holding up a tiny glass bottle. I took the liberty of lacing their hot cocoa with his sleeping draft. The little ones shall sleep soundly through the night and not wake until morning when they will find their stockings stuffed with oranges and chocolate. Augustus, I said, examining the bottle more closely, this label has a small red dot on it. I don't think this is the sleeping draft. What are you saying? He demanded and examined the bottle himself. It took him quite a while, and when he spoke again, he did seem somewhat shaken. That's merely a bit of dried blood in the shape of a small dot. I, mm, I would say it probably happened when we were beating Krampus to death, or, or maybe when I shot St. Nicholas. I don't think that's dried blood, I said. We both stood there for a moment, contemplating the matter. It was Augustus who broke the reverie, walking up the stairs to his front door. Well, he said, it's only orphans. He paused for a moment, head lowered, struggling with a sentiment too large for his chest, then disappeared inside and slammed the front door. I stood on the cold street. The sky was clear and the moonlight a bit merciless. A drunken mummer lay unconscious in the gutter, hugging an enormous cabbage for warmth. Up the block, two young men were beating a third with a tin pipe and horn. A goat trailing mistletoe from its horns ran past me, pursued moments later by several hungry-looking rogues. Merry Christmas, everyone, I said, to no one in particular. And to all a good night. I thought for a moment and then added, especially orphans. I walked the cold streets to my apartment alone. And yet my spirits lifted immediately the next morning when I read the papers. My slumber had been troubled, not just by a perking of my conscience, but by a deeper, darker feeling I can only call fear. 
Would Augustus and I be linked to the scene? Were orphans just as good as real children in the eyes of God? Will I awaken to find John Law pounding at my door? By the time I had rose, I had determined that we would go immediately. I would get Augustus and convince him to accompany me to the police station where we would take full responsibilities for our error. And that is what it is, just a tragic error. And then I saw the papers and stopped in my tracks. According to the Sun, shortly after we left the orphanage, an ominous racket had been heard from upstairs. The local German shooting society had appeared on the scene and discovered a drunken Jim Mahoney surrounded by 30 dead orphans. They were not inclined to accept his explanation that they were like that when he found them. They also discovered upon further investigation an unidentified and dismembered individual distributed about the room in several small footlockers. Mahoney was taken into custody, but that was not the news which caused me to leap hastily in my clothes, go bounding out of the house, and running through the bright snowy streets to the White Street Society. Did you see? I shouted to Augustus, charging in the library and shaking the papers. Mm, he asked, raising an eyebrow. I read aloud from the article. Due to a sudden influx of arrestees from a small riot in Tompkins Square Park, the suspected Mahoney was mistaken for another Mahoney arrested earlier in the evening for public drunkenness and was erroneously released on his own recognizance. His whereabouts are at this time unknown. Quite, Augustus said. It's a Christmas miracle, Augustus, I cried. Now we just have to find Mahoney and spirit him out of the country. If only we knew where he was. I began to pace. I know where he is, Augustus said. You do, my God, man, where? He was just here this morning, Augustus said, banging on my door like a savage, demanding money for passage to South America. What did you do? I gave him his money, of course. But you never loan money. It was an investment, Augustus said. Before the new year, Mahoney should be performing Shakespeare's dogs in Brazil or some such place and probably dying of malaria. All the strength left my legs and I sank into a chair. If you're really in a mood to be astounding, Augustus, astounded, Augustus said, read the Tribune. He tossed it to me. The Broad Street was folded to another article about what they were calling the Great Orphan Massacre, which I thought was a little unfair. I ran my eyes over the familiar details until one particular item brought me to a halt. My word, I gasped. It is a bit like a novel, isn't it, Augustus said. Who would believe that one of these orphans was actually heir to an immense fortune? A jealous half-brother, an attempt to abandon the brat in a snowbank, followed, foiled by his discovery at the hands of your Miss Von Hitler, and a kindly uncle reading his name in today's papers and bringing the whole matter to light. I hear that he has settled fully half the child's inheritance on your German orphan herders. Imagine how their collection of unwanted brats can expand now. They must be giddy with excitement. Most unlikely, I exclaimed, sitting back in my chair and feeling faint. Most incredible. Agreed, Augustus said, pouring me a coffee. But weren't you the one who said Christmas was a time for miracles? I settled back with my coffee in my hand and marveled at the events of the previous evening. The spirit of Christmas, it seemed, had touched us all, each in different ways. Some of us were rich. Some of us were dead. Some of us were on a steamship to Brazil. And, and some of us had avoided prosecution for manslaughter. <laughs> Merry Christmas, I said to Augustus, for it seemed the proper thing to say in such a situation. He mulled this over for a moment, and then I saw the light in his eyes change as if some shade had fallen away. He lifted his head and smiled at me, looking for all the world like a child on Christmas morning. Yes, he replied, it is quite merry, isn't it? Merry Christmas. And that is how Augustus Mortimer came to know the true meaning of Christmas. Thank you. for that holiday cheer. Um, I would just like to remind everybody that Grady's books are available, all three of them, back at that end of the room, and David's books are available up here, so you can get them, you can buy them, you can get them signed. Um, 
Is that Liz I see in the back there? Do you do you have books, Liz? Is that that was the rumor? Um, so I I think. I don't know, do you still want to do the giveaway? How many do you have? We have. Do you have like a? Oh yeah. Okay. So we're gonna let Liz come up here. Do you want to come up here? All right. Let's just gonna ask a question, and we're gonna give away some books. Hold on a sec. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, it's okay. Okay. So Sorry. I'm guessing they told you that there is a um, uh, event for uh, Ellen Dallow's anthology, Mad Hatters and March Harris on the 18th. And so we have copies of the galley, which we're gonna give away now um, with some Alice in Wonderland trivia. So um, I've got five to six depending, so uh, hopefully I can send them all home with you guys. Um, first question I brought is, um, what is the title of the movie about Alice Little and Charles Dodgson for which Jim Henson provided some of the creatures? Dark Crystal? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Woo! Okay, so I'm actually now afraid that Grady is going to take all these, so I'm going to make it like one third person. Um, uh, so, um, who who wrote the script of Dream Child? Does anyone know? Okay. Um, so, um, who played the Red Queen in Tim Burton's two films about Alice? Helena Bonham Carter. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Um, Who's the voice actor who played the Mad Hatter in the Disney movie and is reportedly drawn to look like him? Okay. Yes. Oh, sorry. Wait, I think somebody said it? I, I kind of had a first name, but I forgot the last name. Okay. Um, so what did you say? Edward. It is Edward, yes. Um, I'm going to give it to you because you're the closest. Um, it's Edwin. Okay. Um, I swear these are not actually all film related, though. Those are the easiest ones to find online. Edwin. Um, uh, so, what is the who is the writer of the popular psychedelic era song inspired by Alice in Wonderland? Jefferson Airplane. Oh, uh, well, the writer, the actual. Marty yes, that's correct. I'm just the answer. And uh, finally, uh, what is the name of the theatrical troupe currently producing an immersive Alice in Wonderland adventure in NYC? The name of the troupe? Do you know? If if you don't know, I'll give it to you for that. <laughs> It's not Punchdrug, no. Oh, you, um, the, the, it's Third Rail Projects. Um, I'll give it to you, but uh, then she follows the show. Thank you all so much for your, for your tolerance. Do you have more Thank announcements? You. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, David. Thank you, Gray. Thank you all. Hope you join us next month and stick around and have a drink at Book Sign. We'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.